This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Hello, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, this event about this fascinating book here, The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israel, Israelis, Palestinians, published in 2020 by Duke University Press. Um, there's a German version now as well, Israelis, Palestinenser und Deutsche in Berlin, Geschichte einer komplexen Beziehung, published in 2021. Um, the book was already very topical when it appeared, but I think it has become even more pertinent in light of recent debates about the relationship between Holocaust memory and post-colonialism, and uh, perhaps we'll talk about this um, in the discussion. So I'll introduce the speakers in the order in which they will appear. Um, the first speaker and one of the authors of the book is Katerina Galore. The um, Wikipedia entry describes her as a German-born Israeli art historian and archaeologist. Uh, she is the Hirschfeld Visiting Assistant Professor at the Program in Judaic Studies at Brown University, where she also got her PhD in 1996. Her publications include The Archaeology of Jerusalem, From the Origins to the Ottomans, published by Yale University Press in 2013, and uh, Finding Jerusalem, Archaeology Between Science and Ideology, published by UC Press in 2017. Our second speaker and the co-author of the book is uh, Said Achan. He's an associate professor of um, anthropology at Emory University. He got his PhD at Harvard in 2013. And he is the author of Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. And um, he is currently working on a new book entitled Paradoxes of Humanitarianism, the Social Life of Aid in the Palestinian Territories, which is under contract with Stanford University Press. Our commentator is... Um, our DAD professor from Germany, Dr. Jörg Neuhäuser, who got his PhD at the University of Cologne in 2007. And um, his um, first book was entitled Crown, Church and Constitution, Popular Conservatism in England, 1815 to 1867, which was published by Berkan Books in 2016 and was an English translation of the original German dissertation from 2010. He's currently working on a history of uh, labor in post-war Germany, and um, I have come to know him as a widely read scholar with many diverse interests, and I'm sure he will have interesting comments to offer on the presentation of our two distinguished guests. So Katarina Said, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, I would like to express my gratitude to the Holocaust Living History Workshop for inviting us. It's a huge honor and pleasure. I was uh, looking at your scheduled events and I was really deeply impressed by the scope of the issues that are being tackled here. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for 
bringing all of these important voices together. I would also like to thank Lorraine Ratner, who's making it possible to create this very important platform for survivors and scholars who engage these topics from various angles. Uh, thank you, Frank, for your introduction. And I'm also very grateful to Jörg Neuheiser, who has read our book. And uh, we're very much looking forward to hearing your comments and perhaps any questions you may have. Saed and I actually met during the 2014 Gaza war. I had just returned to the US from Jerusalem where I spent several months with my sons living through the violence. When I first heard Saed speak at a panel at Brown on, on the consequences of this war, and it was actually there and then that I knew I just had to get to know him. Uh, incidentally, two of our dear friends were in town a week later, Hannah, a Jewish friend of Saed's, and Reem, a Palestinian friend of mine, who decided that they had to find a way to get the two of us together. And so we all met in this tea place. And it is uh, basically from then onward that we became close friends. Uh, we were interested in very similar issues, especially the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so we started to reach each, read each other's work, uh, despite the fact that we come from uh, very different scholarly disciplines. Uh, but it was actually not until 2016 when I temporarily moved to Berlin, when I had the idea to work on a little project together for the first time. Um, at the time, the media was really full of articles reporting about the massive migration of Israelis to the city. Um, and scholars were also increasingly becoming interested in this phenomenon, especially in light of Germany's history, its key role in the genocide and um, increasingly powerful and visible initiatives and Holocaust commemoration in the city. And um, I very soon learned about the even larger Palestinian community in, in Berlin, which is about double the size. And I thought it would be an occasion to study these two communities in Berlin together with Saed, um, their relationship with Germans and Germany, and also the question of how these uh, three populations engage both with the traumas of the past, um, but also the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. And um, the, the, the short article we intended to write initially very quickly became longer and longer and longer, and suddenly we're holding a book manuscript in our hands. And as you can hopefully tell, I myself am not a survivor, and until we wrote this book, I was determined to never touch the Holocaust in my work. My father survived Auschwitz and roughly 90, 95% of my family died in the camps. And so for most of my professional career, I felt I didn't have the need to engage these painful memories beyond my personal sphere. 
as they anyhow accompany me probably every single day of my life. Um, however, it is clearly these stories I heard and, and the memories that have led me starting from very early on to be literally obsessed in my quest to understand Judaism, the origins of Judaism, Jewish culture, history, Jewish art, religion, studying, among others, at an Orthodox Midrashah in Jerusalem, in various academic contexts, and in Israel, and France, and Germany, and also, of course, in the U.S. Uh, but as I have gradually integrated in my area of Judaic studies, the field of Israel studies, the Holocaust is not something one can leave out. And, and so here is my first book, Touching Upon the Holocaust, and I actually have continued to deal with related issues since in my more recent research projects. Our first book chapter deals with a particularly complicated and sensitive problem that brings the traumas, the memories, and the consequences of the Holocaust and the Nakba into dialogue. And it also explores the question of how Germans, Israelis, and Palestinians think about and experience these very distinct but clearly historically connected events. And as you know, this is a conversation that a number of Israeli colleagues have been interested in recently. And I'm thinking here especially of Holocaust scholar Amos Goldberg, who uh, was uh, from the Hebrew University, who co-edited this volume together with Palestinian scholar Bashir Bashir, The Holocaust and the Nakba, a new grammar of trauma and history published by Columbia University Press in 2018, and I think, Said, you can move on to the next slide. And um, so for us, I think this issue had two important dimensions. One was to actually create this feeling of trust, understanding, and compassion between the two of us, Saad as a Palestinian and me as an Israeli, who have lived on two opposite sides of the conflict or the wall, uh, to recognize each other's traumas, both inherited and also actual experiences we've lived through, was a very important emotional and intellectual foundation to work on this together. And um, I think it was this foundation that then allowed us together as a team to engage the scholarship related to these issues and also to listen and digest the many stories we heard from our German, Israeli, and Palestinian interlocutors we interviewed for our ethnographic study. Another complicated matter that we examine are the salient issues of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and again, a very difficult but also necessary conversation, especially in light of our interest in these three communities who intersect in Berlin. We examine anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in Berlin and in Germany more broadly as separate phenomenon, 
but we also bring these two forms of racism into dialogue by paying both attention to the similarities and overlaps, but also, of course, as we pay attention to their distinct historical and cultural forms of expression, especially with regard to Germany. A little bit along the line of the work that Martin Bunzel, Martin Benz, Armin Nanger, and Jasmin Schumann did in the context of Germany and also Austria, um, they did not, of course, consider Israeli and Palestinian migrant communities in their studies, and this is really the task we set out um, for ourselves in, in, in this uh, study on the moral triangle. And uh, among the more important results we noticed is that there is a disproportionate attention on anti-Semitism, which is, of course, understandable, but also creates some issues we discuss. There is relatively little attention to Islamophobia, despite the many more incidents of abuse and violence. And we also notice that there is significantly less interest in and commitment to combating Islamophobia. And perhaps another noteworthy point is uh, the gap that exists between Berlin's Jewish community, which consists predominantly of Jews who migrated from the former Soviet Union and Berlin's Israeli community. So something really um, quite strange. And uh, I should also say, whereas the fear of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence among the city's Jewish community is very prevalent, it does not seem to be a concern that Israeli Jews seem to share. And um, I, I should also add here, despite the institutional social-political distinction of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in Germany, um, basically trying not only to keep these forms of racism apart, but also in the way Germany engages with these two communities. We actually did distinguish a lot of intersections of Israeli and Palestinian initiatives in the form of joint businesses, uh, also various intellectual and academic projects, especially in the arts, visual and performing. And we felt that these point joint uh, initiatives were, were really very heartwarming and also something that for obvious reasons, we see much less in Israel-Palestine. And here actually on this uh, picture, we see one of these spaces that brought Israelis and Palestinians together in this interfaith meeting, the so-called Salam Shalom uh, initiative. Um, and uh, perhaps um, um, among their many activities are their campaign against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, where they try sort of to raise awareness about, for example, head coverings for both Jewish and Muslim women and men. And uh, perhaps some concluding words here that go beyond this joint book project is that uh, Saed and I have continued to work together. We've written a number of articles together, a couple of, uh, that uh, deal with museum exhibitions on Jerusalem. 
Uh, we also just wrote another article on gender politics in Israel from the early stages of the Zionist movement through the present. And um, even beyond our co-authored work, my research ever since uh, this book that we published together continues to be very much shaped by, by this experience to work with Said, including a book project uh, on Jewish women that I just finished or an editorial I wrote uh, in Die Zeit not so long ago where I examined the definitions of anti-Semitism as proposed by uh, the IRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and also more recently, the, uh, a newer definition proposed by the JDA, the Jerusalem Declaration of Anti-Semitism. And finally, um, another book project I'm working on right now, which is about a friendship with a Palestinian refugee from Gaza, where again, my, my memories of my family's fates in the concentration camp, uh, my father's accounts about Auschwitz and Sachsenhausen, my parents' refugee experience later on, the fact that I was born as stateless um, are also very much at the heart of what I'm writing about currently. And I would like to, um, Saed, to take on from here. Thank you so much, uh, Kati, for your words, and thank you to the organizers for making it possible for us to be here with you this evening over Zoom to be able to discuss our book. Um, I am deeply moved by the audience that's with us, that's here to, to hear our perspectives and our thoughts, and I very much look forward to the comments of the commentators as well as the Q&A. The Q&A really is my favorite part. So please, please do share your questions with us. And if we can't get to them this evening, please feel free to message Kati and to message uh, me as well. We're, we're more than happy to hear from any of you. So let me just say a little bit about the title of our book, The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israelis, Palestinians. So we theorize that there is a moral triangle, a triangle that connects Germans, Israelis, and Palestinians. And there's a central question we pose in the book, which is what is Germany, the state and the society's moral responsibility towards Israelis and Palestinians in the present? And what we find, especially with regard to those Israelis and Palestinians living within Germany's borders, specifically in Berlin, over 60,000 Palestinians, over 25,000 Israelis living now in the city, is that Germans are very divided on this question. Germans are not a heterogeneous population. We interviewed about a third of our uh, interviewees were German, a third were Israeli, and a third were Palestinian, about 100 interviewees in total. We spent the summer of 2018 conducting ethnographic fieldwork research across the city, as well as structured and, and semi-structured and informal interviews. Kati had spent significant time in Berlin. Of course, she grew up in Germany before that. But what we found was that a number of Germans felt that there was moral responsibility towards Israelis alone. A number of Germans were in another school of thought that they felt that the moral responsibility was towards Palestinians alone. Some felt that it was for, it should be extended to both Israelis and 
Palestinians. Um, others felt that there's no moral responsibility in the present toward either community from Germany. And there was a fifth school of thought of folks who were indifferent or apathetic or maybe not very knowledgeable uh, on the issue. Now, of course, our position is that there is a moral responsibility towards Israelis and Palestinians. We feel that it's laudatory what Germany is doing to recognize the Holocaust, to recognize anti-Semitism, to recognize the genocide of the past, to recognize forms of racism and discrimination and xenophobia, and to extend compassion towards Jewish individuals as well as Israeli subjects. This is to be lauded. We also feel that it should be extended to Palestinians as well, that Palestinians should be recognized as humans, um, Palestinian suffering should be recognized, and this moral triangle that connects Germans, Israelis, and Palestinians is important to be recognized. Theoretically, we're very much inspired by the work of Noam Chomsky, the renowned uh, Jewish-American intellectual. He has a book entitled The Fateful Triangle, The United States, Israel, and the Palestinians, and there's a lot of work examining the relationship between Americans, Israelis, and Palestinians, but there's a dearth of scholarship and literature that examines the German-Israeli-Palestinian relationship and what we call this moral triangle. We're also very much inspired by the work of Michael Rothberg, who's a Holocaust studies scholar at UCLA. He's a renowned public intellectual, brilliant thinker, and he has a book on what he calls multi-directional memory. So he talks about how oftentimes we see a kind of competitive memory where individuals from different oppressed communities feel concerned that if there's public recognition of the suffering of the other, that this may take attention away from public recognition of our own suffering and our own narratives. But he argues that the constructive way forward is not to engage in competitive memory, but rather multidirectional memory where we recognize that the public discourse and landscape is much more robust when we make room for the recognition of the suffering of all. And that once we make that space for some, there will be space for everyone and all legitimate struggles to be recognized. So it's in the spirit of multidirectional memory that we wrote our book. I'd like to share just a few vignettes from our time on the ground. Uh, Katya and I visited people's homes, cafes, different neighborhoods across this cosmopolitan, remarkable uh, city of Berlin. And along the way, we were able to meet Gunter Demnig, who you could see here in one of the streets of Berlin in the neighborhood of Mitte with his assistant, where he is installing what are called stumbling stones on the sidewalk. And so these stumbling stones are actually placed in front of buildings where Jewish individuals were taken by the Nazis and either killed or disappeared or displaced. And what Gunter Demnig does is he researches these locations and he provides the name of the Jewish individual as well as their fate. And the point of this is so that in the present, Germans and others traversing the city of Berlin, as they walk through the streets, they literally stumble across these stumbling stones to remember the legacy of the past and its reverberations in the present. It was incredibly powerful for me to, to witness him and his work, to be there. We observed a moment of silence when this particular stumbling stone was installed on this particular street. And it reminded me of my own childhood, growing up in Palestine, attending a Quaker school called the Ramallah Friends School, where we actually studied the Holocaust and we read the diary of Anne Frank and we read Elie Wiesel's Night. And 
our school instilled within us compassion and understanding of Jewish history and the Jewish struggle and the Holocaust and how that shapes the Israeli society in the present. So this was really a powerful and very emotional moment for me. But growing up in Palestine was also disorienting to study the Holocaust and to study German military occupation um, over Europe while I was living under Israeli military occupation in the West Bank. And my family uh, in the West Bank continued to live under military occupation. So as a teenager, it was very disorienting for me to be able to reconcile these different narratives and these different historical realities and to figure out how to process them with my own embodied and lived experience. But working on this project with Kati in Berlin provided me with intellectual tools to be able to make sense of these very painful issues regarding trauma, regarding history, regarding oppression, regarding political violence and racism. Uh, and it was giving birth to this book, I think, was a, a tremendous honor and the reception that it has received, the wide reception and the, the positive reviews that it has received has really been a boon to uh, our spirits. I will also say that in the city of Berlin, um, I was very, very moved when visiting the, the home of Kati and her partner, Michael. Um, in Berlin, at their, where they were staying in their particular flat that summer of 2018, I learned that actually it was home to a private Jewish music school and that the children and the teacher of that Jewish music school were actually taken away by the Nazis and some of them killed and others displaced. And Kati and Michael were then renting this, this particular flat that was their home in Berlin that had that history and that had the ghosts of that history haunting them. And I was deeply, deeply, deeply moved to then learn that Kati and Michael organized a fundraiser in their home, in that same location, to raise funds for a music school for Middle Eastern refugee children in the present who were in uh, Germany and to encourage them to, to, to study music and to support their music education. And I thought that's incredible. What an amazing universalist way to honor the, the, the suffering and the voices of those who perished and their souls um, from the Holocaust. But to, and to think about how it is that when we say never again, this refers to combating all forms of xenophobia and racism and discrimination in all of their manifestations in Germany and beyond. It was an incredibly powerful moment. Also, as a gay person, I was incredibly moved that in Berlin, I was met with tremendous acceptance. And it was surreal to process that Berlin, the capital of the Nazis, the, the site where so many LGBTQ people, their bodies were targeted by the Nazis to disappear, to die as a result of homophobia and, and violent forms of othering. That in the present, Berlin has become this cosmopolitan city that's so queer affirming and so welcoming and so fabulous. So it was incredible to be met with that acceptance as a queer person. But I must also say that at the same time, I, was, I felt not accepted overall in terms of the public discourse and in terms of the mainstream uh, establishment and institutions in Berlin as a result of my Palestinian identity. And what we find is that a lot of Germans today struggle to figure out how it is that they can simultaneously recognize the sins and crimes of the Holocaust, disavow all forms of anti-Semitism, which again, they should, while at the same time having compassion for the Palestinian people and for Palestinian suffering and for the Palestinian struggle that continues through the present. 
And as a result, there is a form of censorship that exists in Berlin, particularly of Palestinian voices. And what Kati and I found was that a lot of Israelis in Berlin are celebrated in the German mainstream media, but Palestinian Germans, especially elite Palestinians in Germany with financial capital, social capital, intellectual capital, cultural capital, many of them feel invisible and that their voices are not heard and their recognitions and contributions to German society are not acknowledged. So for example, Salim Ashkar is a world-renowned Palestinian musician and pianist. Berlin is his home. He is a remarkable, remarkable musician. He performs all over the world and he takes pride in his Palestinian heritage as well as in being a German and contributing to Berlin's civil society and a global cosmopolitan music community. In the middle, you see Tariq Al-Turk, a Palestinian refugee from Syria who arrived in Berlin and has now become a world-renowned gymnast and dancer. He's called the Arab Spider-Man. You can see an image of him performing dance around one of the skyscrapers of Berlin. And he's just an incredible young man, so creative and so gifted and has such a remarkable story that deserves to be told and to be heard. And also you see the image of Sausan Chadli, a Palestinian German politician uh, who's, who has a remarkable public persona and profile, who's incredibly tenacious and overcome incredible adversity to, to complete her education and to join German politics in Berlin. And now she's incredibly famous and a big inspiration for the Palestinian German community. So just to, to, to conclude, I just want to uh, reiterate that uh, while our book was published in 2020 in English with Duke University Press, um, the German translation is out. This is the cover of our German book. It was published last year uh, with uh, De Greuter, and it is found all across Berlin and Germany now. And uh, you're welcome to read it in the book in either German or in English. And here you see the cover of an amazing play at the Gorky Theater in Berlin. This is a photograph of a play where you have German, Israeli, and Palestinian actors all acting on stage together in German, in English, in Hebrew, and in Arabic, really representing this moral triangle in a really visceral and clear way. And that's why we felt it would be perfect for the cover of our book. Um, so again, we'd like to thank you all for being here. We'd like to thank the organizers. Uh, and now I'll pass it over to Jörg Neuhauser, who's going to offer some comments. Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, now, um, everybody's saying thank you. I would like to thank you as well. I, I would like to thank Kathy and Said for their, uh, for their talk tonight um, and for the uh, fascinating perspective on the relationship between, um, well, first of all, different groups of Berliners. This is a book on Berlin. This was a talk on Berlin. Um, for my commentary, I'm not actually uh, only drawing on what we've just heard, but also on my reading of the book, uh, also called The Moral Triangle, we've seen the title, uh, a book that I highly recommend to everyone. I was, I was really impressed by the um, nuanced analysis and the um, careful attention that you paid not only to the complicated relationship between Germans, Jews and Palestinians in general, but also, and that, that was probably even more fascinating to me, the, the complex structures and differences within each group um, that you're analyzing in Berlin. So this was extremely interesting to read about, uh, and it's a fascinating book. Now, I've been asked to, to comment on tonight's talk because I'm a visiting professor from Germany, um, but I'm not from Berlin. Um, I grew up in the very west of Germany, um, not very far from the Dutch border, and um, I have ever, actually never lived in Berlin. So one of my 
um, main questions or the, the main points that I've been thinking about while reading the book was um, to which extent is this a book about Berlin and to which extent is it a book about uh, a wider moral triangle that exists in Germany? Um, when we as historians teach students about the Roaring Twenties during the Weimar Republic, we always talk about, uh, we always keep reminding them that Berlin was not Weimar. Um, you know, don't expect too much Charleston, too many flappers in the Bavarian countryside. Um, uh, and today, Berlin, uh, today's Berlin, of course, is very special too, and still uh, an extraordinarily different place from the rest of Germany. Um, in your talk, you mentioned the um, celebration of the sort of growing Jewish community uh, that we have in Germany today. Um, so while there is a growing number of Jews in many places in Germany, especially in the bigger cities, um, there certainly is not anything like a distinct Israeli Jewish presence anywhere else in Germany other than in Berlin. Um, if you look at the moral triangle in the wider sort of German context, I think it's important to remember that for the vast majority of Germans today, Jews are still uh, present in their absence is how I would, would, would try to capture it. Um, I think especially in West German cities, we live in uh, towns, cities in which over the last few decades, we have developed a landscape of uh, memorials that are dedicated to the Holocaust. We have uh, the stumbling stones that you showed in your presentation. Uh, we have plaques remembering destroyed synagogues, uh, all kinds of memorials that remind us of Nazi crimes. Um, deportations or the Holocaust. Uh, but when I grew up in West Germany at the Dutch border in the 1970s and 1980s, um, I never actually met a Jew in my hometown. And I think even today, it's probably a very rare thing to actually sort of meet Jewish people uh, on a daily basis. Um, and I believe that explains something that so many Israelis that you quoted in your book commented upon, um, namely that they, are, they feel they're treated differently by Germans uh, because of their background. Uh, they're treated not as individuals, but as Jews and Israelis, and the Holocaust is kind of always in the room whenever they start a conversation with Germans. Now, that's probably true for all of Germany. Um, Germans simply don't know how to talk to Jews, and it's not only because of a complicated guilt complex, but also because it usually simply never happens. You don't come across many Jews in your life if you are non-Jewish uh, non German. Now, the same, of course, is not true for Muslims and Arabs. Now, I don't say Palestinians here because uh, most Germans don't actually distinguish between different group of Arab immigrants from the Middle East. Um, in your book, you talk about how Palestinians kind of, you know, um, disappear in the wider um, sort of um, migrant population with an Arabic uh, background. And I can easily see how your ordinary Berliner lumps all Muslims from the Middle East, probably even including um, Turkish guest workers and their descendants into one big group of uh, foreigners. Now, growing up in West Germany, I had classmates who identified as German-Syrian and Turkish. Uh, and I remember well how one day, um, and at the time I was probably about 13 or 14, um, I was given a typical Palestinian, a Palestinian headscarf as a present. Um, it was a present that somebody had brought me who would, had made a trip to Syria to his family. Uh, and then the next couple of days I wore it um, in school as a scarf, uh, and I was immediately called out because my teacher saw um, this headscarf as a symbol of anti-Israeli terrorism. 
Um, so at the time, of course, I knew very little about the Middle East, but I was very aware of the day-to-day um, -day racism that many guest workers and Arab migrants uh, experience in my hometown and in German society today. Um, so the headscarf for me was something like a general statement of solidarity with migrants and a sign against any kind of racism, um, certainly uh, including uh, a general stance against anti-Semitism. Uh, so I guess what I want to say um, from a small-town German point of view, you don't necessarily need um, this large Jewish, uh, Israeli, or Palestinian community around you, uh, and you will still end up in the moral triangle. And it can be um, very, very difficult for Germans to navigate, uh, on the one hand, a strong commitment to the need to commemorate the Holocaust and an equally strong desire to translate the lessons from the past in a, generalist, uh, in a general anti-racist attitude. Uh, now, my example is from the uh, 1980s. Um, your book is on 2018. I wonder whether the emphasis on the moral triangle or the, the complications that you have and the, the sense of censorship that many Germans feel has actually become more important in recent years. And I would like to, um, to hear your perspective on that. Um, also, I would like to invite you to um, talk a little bit more about your perspective on the relationship between the situation in Berlin and uh, in the rest of Germany today. Um, the way I see it, um, highlighting the moral triangle adds an important dimension to the perception of contemporary Germany, uh, even here in the US. Um, when I teach German history at UCSD, I'm often surprised by just how positive a view my students usually have of Germany. Uh, they talk about Angela Merkel's decision to accept refugees. Um, they talk about how Germany has addressed its Nazi legacy and accepted responsibility for the Holocaust. And they might even be aware of the um, sort of Jewish revival that is taking place all over Germany today. Um, and while there is a huge concern about the rise of um, sort of far-right uh, movements or the alternative for Germany, uh, the far-right party in the German parliament right now, uh, and because there are reports about a rising number of anti-Semitic incidents, uh, it's often hard to convey the complexities that come with um, what I would call Germany's nature as a 21st century melting pot, uh, in which we have different cultures, different ethnic groups, uh, and their respective traumatic memories from all over the world, and we all need to bring those together. Now, as you've said in your book, you argue that Germany needs to continue to actively address and commemorate the consequences of the anti-Semitism uh, during the Nazi period, but that a contemporary German identity also requires us to be prepared to listen to other traumatic experiences, like that of the Nakba, uh, in order to develop a culture in which everybody feels welcome and can work through their trauma term. Uh, and I just want to say that I totally agree with that and that I believe that this is possible without questioning Israel's right to exist and without denying that many Palestinians have suffered tremendously as a consequence of the continuous uh, territorial conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, and if I may, um, I, um, just, just one very tiny question at the end. Um, so you did your research in 2018, and uh, I realized, or it struck me when I read your book, um, that um, a lot of the... Um, activities or the visibility of Israeli and Palestinians in Berlin was connected to cafes, museums, uh, museums and other cultural places. 
Um, now, these are exactly the institutions and businesses that have been extremely hard hit by the pandemic. So I was wondering, um, can you say a little bit how this situation has changed since 2018 and how you see um, the kind of infrastructure of, uh, of Jewish and, and, and Palestinian communities um, today in Berlin? Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for all of your um, incredibly thoughtful comments on on, um, on our book. And um, yeah, I, I very much enjoyed your question, your comments on, on contextualizing the situation of Berlin that we focused on to the to the um, situation in Germany as a whole. And um, so, yes, I mean, the tendency is um, actually most people we spoke to um, who, who are familiar with Germany always emphasize how different Berlin is from the rest of Germany. And I, I agree with you, there are certain parallels between um, German society and the relationship uh, between Germans and Jews, Germans um, and other migrant communities. Uh, but in, in Berlin, it is much more in intensified. And the reason why we felt um, that Berlin was such a compelling, compelling site to um, conduct our research um, is basically for several reasons. Um, Berlin has the largest Palestinian community in Europe. I mean, there are between 60 and 80,000 Palestinians living in Berlin, and we don't have the same situation in any other German city or any other uh, European city. Um, the city is also unique because it has this enormous Israeli community. There are between um, estimates range anywhere between 10,000 and 40,000. So it's about half the size of the Palestinian community. And again, it's the largest Israeli community within Europe currently. Now, the irony, of course, is the fact that Berlin was the Nazi capital. And it is from there that the Holocaust was engineered. And it is not something that you only discover when you read a book. It's something that is really in your face. I mean, with, with this very prevalent Holocaust commemoration, you cannot escape it. It's, it's in your face. Uh, you're very conscientious about it. And, and people are very much informed about the Holocaust, whether through education, um, the urban landscape, um, cultural events, educational initiatives, museums. Um, and so these three the three communities, Germans, with the knowledge of their history, um, Palestine, this large Palestinian community, this massive recent migration of Israelis that ironically pick as an attractive city to, to live in. Instead of living in Israel, they go to, uh, to live in Berlin. So this irony and these three groups coming together is uh, and and the size of these communities is what um, caused us to, to 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 focus on one city rather than on all of Germany and then um, establish comparisons. But I, I agree with you that many of the things we observed there resonate with what what is going on in the rest of Germany, for sure. 
Okay, we have a number of very interesting questions and we'll see how many uh, you can answer. I would like to begin with a question by Frederick. He is wondering whether the Palestinians you spoke with uh, explicitly attributed their losses, or not explicitly, but indirectly attributed their losses uh, to the Nazi actions, which then, of course, contributed uh, worldwide support for Zionism and the establishment of, of Israel. Good question. I, I suggest, Syed, you should answer this. I'm happy to, and I'm happy that my dear friend, um, Frederick Hertz, Fred, is here with us. Um, thank you, Fred, for your thoughtful question. Um, I, I just want to be clear that uh, at no point did any Palestinian um, say that they felt that they were a direct victim of the Germans or the Nazis, uh, particularly in the context of the German occupation, of the Holocaust, etc. So they completely understand that the Holocaust took place in Europe and, and Germany and across Europe, and that Palestinians were in Palestine, in the Middle East, and you know, in a in a different continent altogether. That being said, the late Palestinian intellectual, sort of the giant um, for Palestinian intellectuals, Edward Said was known for saying that Palestinians are the victims of the victims and the refugees of the refugees. Now I know that this is a sensitive comment and, and it lands for people differently, but for many, many, many Palestinians, that comment by Edward Said, the late Edward Said, really resonates. So many people do feel that they're indirect victims because uh, as was mentioned, the state of Israel is born in Palestine in 1948. And as a result of the Arab-Israeli wars, the Nakba, the catastrophe, etc., Palestinians begin to experience displacement, dispossession, disenfranchisement, and that has continued for over seven decades now. So that Palestinian trauma, which continues through the present, uh, many people, especially Palestinians, understand that there are these historical chronologies and that the state of Israel derives so much of its moral legitimacy as a result of the Holocaust. Now, I just want to say one more thing, which is that Kati and I are very clear in the book that we are not arguing that the Holocaust and the Nakba are identical, nor are we even arguing that they can be compared. All that we're arguing is that these historical events are interrelated, especially for the lives of Germans, Israelis, and Palestinians, and that the trauma that connects these communities is interrelated. So if we want to talk about restorative justice and healing in the future, we have to be able to acknowledge that trauma and how it connects us. Thank you, Said. Uh, the next question is from Lorraine. Uh, considering that there are people uh, who have publicly demanded that Israel should be wiped off the map, is it easier for Muslims, specifically Palestinians, I assume, and Israelis to get along in uh, Germany because there they are less controlled, they have uh, more freedom to meet, discuss, uh, whatever? Yeah, that's a good question. So, of course, I mean, I think um, both Israelis and Palestinians suffer a lot from the segregation from the wall for, um, I mean, the fact that Israelis... Um, cannot go to Gaza, um, that Palestinians in Gaza, Gaza are basically um, locked in, in a prison. Um, they cannot leave um, 
legally in Israeli is not allowed to go to the West Bank, except if you're a settler um, and Palestinians um, need work permits um, to leave, even if they want to come to, to Jerusalem to worship. It's, um, it's, there's um, very strict limitations. So there's really an effort to segregate these two communities and, and there's this tendency to, to really turn the other into the enemy, into the violent en enemy. I, that, that is not, I, I don't want to say there are no um, encounters between Israelis and Palestinians in, in Israel or even within Gaza. There are encounters and there are um, initiatives, there are villages, there are um, towns where Israelis and Palestinians live together and have um, um, engaged in joint initiatives. But in Berlin, being far from the segregation, being away from, from the conflict and from the violence um, on both sides is, makes it obviously much easier to engage. And, and to have uh, projects together. We, um, I mean, we, we, we've encountered many different uh, projects in the arts, uh, in, in academia, in, I mean, um, we picked this uh, picture um, for our cover page on, on, um, on this theater performance that engages these communities between past traumas and uh, present tensions and the relationship between these communities in Germany and the conflict in the Middle East. I mean, those are things that are being performed on, on, a, on a stage in the city of Berlin. I mean, there's so many opportunities in Berlin um, that provide access of these different communities to each other that, that we don't see in the Middle East. I mean, the... the the segregation is definitely not helpful. Thank you. Uh, the next question is from Pamela, who uh, I think she specifically uh, would like Kati to answer. Uh, could you say more about the divisions between Soviet and Israeli Jewish communities in Berlin and the impact uh, of these divisions on the moral triangle? Yeah, so um, our focus group was not the Jewish community. There's a lot of work on the Jewish community and we of course um, read uh, a number of articles and books written about the Jewish, uh, the Jewish community in Germany and Berlin more specifically. But our focus was really um, the Israeli community, the Palestinian community and um, Germans, which also included some um, some some of the um, some Jewish community members. I mean, um, individuals who identify as Jewish. Um, we know that uh, about eighty percent of the Jewish community in Germany and Berlin um, are um, from the uh, um, from the former uh, Soviet Union. They tend to be uh, relatively right wing. This again, this is based mostly on studies. We have read it's um, partially based on uh, personal experience. I've lived in Germany for 19 years and I still have a lot of connections. My mother still lives in Germany. And so I, I know a little bit out of, of my own experience. Um, 
So this is a very um, conservative community, very supportive of um, uh, Israel right-wing politics. And the Israeli community um, in Berlin tends to be more left-wing. On average, they, they're obviously more informed about Judaism and also more informed about the Israeli Palestinian conflict than their um, Jewish counterparts in in Germany, just because access to to um, Jewish education is obviously not as prevalent as it is in Israel. And um, what is what struck us, and perhaps me, me even more than than Saed, as I've uh, I am Israeli and I've lived for a long time in Israel is this disconnect between these two communities. On the one hand, the Jewish community is extremely supportive of, um, of Israel. Um, they have no interest for the um, majority. They, they have no interest with the Israeli community that actually lives in Berlin. And they, there is not a lot of connection between these two communities. Not all Israelis who live in Berlin know German. Um, and they, I mean, it, there are not too many overlaps. There are not too many common interests. Also politically, these um, mostly left-wing Israelis who have lived through the conflict uh, uh, tend to be quite critical of uh, Israeli right-wing politics. Thank you. Uh, yeah. It's very interesting. I wasn't aware of this. Yeah. this and so one, th one aspect that I mentioned um, as I spoke earlier, um, and something that um, we not only based on our own study, but on other um, ethnographic studies conducted by Israeli scholars who were interested in the Israeli community, is that um, that among the Jewish community in Berlin, there is this prevalent fear of anti-Semitic attacks. And it's something that I would say is almost uh, defines their identity, this, this fear of anti-Semitic violence, whether it's verbal or physical, it, it is very much part of their day-to-day -day life. Whereas for Israelis, it's, it's not an issue. It's almost not an issue ever. And not only because they don't experience anti-Semitism, but probably because um, for them being Jewish is very natural. They grew up in Israel where the majority is Jewish. And um, they, have, they grew up with uh, a whole different kind of fear, fear of war, fear, fear of real war situations, the intifada, violence, and, uh, and so for, for Israelis coming from the Middle East, what the, the, the anti-Semitism that people talk about or are fearful of is not something that, that defines their, their being in, in Berlin. It's, it, it, it isn't part of their, I mean, most is there, there's a lot of uh, Israelis, for example, that live in Neukölln, where also um, most of the Palestinians live. One of the biggest enclaves is is in Neukölln, and so a lot of Israelis live actually in the same neighborhood as most of the Palestinians. And for uh, many um, 
Jewish Germans going to Neukölln is actually off the map. It's a no-go zone. Um, they feel that there's a lot of crime, there's a lot of migrants from the Middle East. And so, so for the most part, they really live in separate worlds. So I have one last question, and it's a question by Rami. Um, I think it's a good concluding question, uh, a very big one. Will there ever be peace between Palestinians and Israeli? If so, will the talks begin in Germany? <laughs> That's a good question. Saed, since you tend to be the more optimistic one between the two of us, I, I let you, do, you answer this question. Well, so first of all, I, as Kati mentioned, I am an eternal optimist. I'm someone who always sees the glass half full and tries to see light at the end of the tunnel. I also think that we do have to hold on to hope and that losing hope is a privilege that we don't have. You know, usually it's actually more privileged folks who are able to just disavow hope, but it's people who are the most downtrodden for whom hope is what sustains life on a daily level and allows them to get through even the most difficult adversities. So absolutely, we should maintain hope that there will be peace and justice and equality and security and dignity for everyone in Israel-Palestine, including Jewish, Christian, and Muslim citizens. Ultimately, this is the vision, and we will achieve that. Um, I feel it in my heart and in my gut that we will achieve that. Um, and in our book, we actually do argue that there are elements of life in Berlin, as well as points of intersection in Berlin between Palestinians and Israelis, which provide us with a kind of horizon and vision for what a post-conflict uh, and peaceful Palestine-Israel, uh, Israel-Palestine can look like, where you have, uh, as Kati mentioned, neighborhoods in Berlin where Palestinians and Israelis are living, businesses, initiatives being established together, people speaking Hebrew and Arabic and German with one another on stage and elsewhere, and not weighed down by the weight of segregation, of oppression, of militarism, of political violence. So for me, ironically, it was actually being in Berlin where I actually was able to tangibly and viscerally imagine on the ground what it could look like one day for, to be, for there to be peace in our homeland. I have to tell you personally, just hearing these uh, optimistic words, uh, it does one really good, especially in our dark days. So thank you, Saeed. Um, I would like to express my sincere gratitude, uh, first of all, uh, to Said and uh, Kati for being here, for sharing your very important research with us and for answering questions. Uh, we weren't able to uh, get through all the questions, uh, but uh, we are all grateful, I think, for your expertise and your um, compassion. Uh, I would also uh, like to extend a big thank you to Deborah Hertz, uh, one of the founders of the Holocaust and History Workshop, who actually first brought the Moral Triangle to my attention. And incidentally, it was her brother, Frederick, who brought the book to her attention. And that's how it goes. Uh, thank you also to Frank and Jörg uh, and to all my colleagues at the library who helped with the uh, tech aspect for today. Last but certainly not least, thank you everyone for attending um, this event. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you, Kati and Said. Uh, have a good night, everyone. <laughs>